The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a fascinating guest. And if you're at all interested in statistical analysis of sports, uh, behavioral finance, data analysis, understanding um, streakiness, understanding the Monty Hall problem, and then extrapolating that towards things like uh, the hot hand in basketball, you're going to find this to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, Joshua Benjamin Miller comes from California, where he basically racked up all the degrees he could uh, at uh, some of the UC schools before getting his PhD at, in economics uh, in Minnesota. Josh and his co-author have taken apart some of the more interesting statistical assumptions made uh, in the original hot hand study with Tom Gilovich and Amos Tversky, uh, and they found something really unusual by looking at the data from a slightly different perspective. And I approached their paper with tremendous amount of skepticism. I thought the randomness of the hot hand uh, was a fairly well-proven study that Tversky and Gilovich did. But when you look at the data and you look at how they analyzed it, it's hard not to reach the conclusion that there is some sort of a hot hand. It, it, it's quite sophisticated mathematics, but Josh does a very nice job reducing it to some very easily understandable um, probability. We don't, we don't, no math is required. Um, you just have to know the difference between a head or a tail when you're flipping a coin. If you're at all interested in anything probability, sports related, statistical, you're going to find this to be a fascinatingly wonky and tremendously interesting conversation. So, with no further ado, my conversation with economist and statistician, Josh Miller. My special guest today is Joshua Benjamin Miller. Uh, he is the co-author, along with Adam Sanjorjo, of a fascinating paper that puts challenge to the myth of the myth of the hot hand. Uh, he comes to us with a BA in economics and an MA uh, in mathematical statistics from UC Santa Barbara. He has his PhD from University of Minnesota, and he is currently a professor in the economics department at the University of Alicante yep. in Spain, where he focuses his research on behavioral economics, judgment and decision-making, game theory, and statistical and experimental methods. Josh Miller, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me, Barry. So, a little background. We kind of met after I interviewed Thomas Gilovich, who I was mostly interested in due to all of his work on behavioral finance, but he also co-authored a fascinating paper uh, that basically pointed out the hot hand. Uh, he co-authored that with Amos Tversky, by the way, that the hot hand was really a myth and it was just we were all being fooled by randomness. 
how did that paper come to your attention, and what what fascinated you by it? So that paper uh, came to the attention of my co-author, Adam, who's also at University of Alicante. Pretty much everyone who takes a behavioral economics class, and even earlier, gets exposed to that paper. It's like it's one of the you know, the prime examples of a bias because it's such apparently powerful. It, it's part of the canon of, oh, look yeah. how easily we're all fooled. Exactly. And in the, in the beginning of any kind of behavioral economics class, you have to show the real-world implications first to kind of motivate students. And here is this um, one that professionals are, fall victim to, and they're so resistant to it. I mean, they, they were shown that this hot, I mean, we haven't defined hot hand yet, but, you know, the hot hand is this idea that you're in the zone, you know, that success breeds success. And if you look at basketball players um, and coaches, they all believe in this thing. And so when they discovered that there was no pattern there, and they came and, you know, reveal, revealed the out, output of their research, the professionals were, it was difficult to convince them. Oh, there was tremendous pushback. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a famous quote you, that's been referenced. Uh, was it Red Orbach up at the Boston Celtics? Yes. Uh, I don't. I don't care what this professor says. So I, they do a study. Who cares? Right. right. Yeah. So I mean, the stubbornness that that came out of the practitioners was was really dramatic. Because typically, you can convince someone that is motivated to get things right if you can demonstrate that they'll benefit from it. Um, and they just discounted it. And so there's this famous quote from Amos Tversky, you know, after all the stubbornness that they encountered repeatedly of people just not even looking at the evidence they were showing them, um, is that he said, I've been in a thousand arguments, won them all, but convinced no one. <laughs> and he was, <laughs> he was very famous for being um, not only quite brilliant, but a little hard-headed and a little aggressive when it came to debating people, according, at least according... Before my time. So right, I at least don't. according to Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project, uh, between Kahneman and Tversky, they were two very distinct personality types. Mm. So, so let's get back to you. Before we... We're going to spend a lot of time on the hot hand. Um, you're not what I would think of as a traditional economist. What, what sort of work do you focus on? Both my co-author and I focus on individual decision-making. Mm -hmm. right? So we're looking at... Is it individual decision-making within a group, within an institution? Um, both. Or right? just as a lone wolf yeah, saying so, yes so, or so, no? So there are, you know, there are the psychological factors, like um, my co-author works on search and attention and things like this, um, but there are also um, factors of the institution, the design, like how information is presented to you. Mm -hmm. um, and these things... While it may be important to an ind individual, they also bubble up in terms of how it affects you know, decision-making in groups and how it affects financial markets. And so in the end, it, it does impact um, um, policy and economic outcomes. So, the, yeah. It has real-world effects, in other yeah. words. Yeah. These aren't just ivory tower abstract discussions. There's real-world application for how decisions are making and how information is presented. That's right. So that, that's really quite interesting. Um, when you and you mentioned one of your research areas is behavioral finance, has all the low-hanging fruit in this space been picked, or is there still lots and lots of things to be discovered? There's still lots of fruit. Yeah. Um, whether it's low-hanging, I think you always have to work for it, right? Right. Um, so I think the way you get uh, the fruit, you have to think a lot about how to measure things, mm -hmm. have a, kind of a, a theoretical grounding in what you're trying to get at. And you can't just rely on existing d data and existing things that have been counted. You have to go out and measure things yourself a bit mm -hmm. um, and do some work to collect that data. Um, and so, you know, what, like, so a lot of the modern work you'll see is going beyond just the choices that people make, like when you're paying them to make decisions and looking at their choices. I mean, you can get a lot more um, about 
you learn a lot more about what people want and what they believe by looking at other things like reaction times, mm-hmm. how they search for things, how you know what they're paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, and in other are, words, you're not just bringing in a bunch of undergrads, sticking them in a room, giving them twenty bucks for the night, and saying we're going to put you through a series of things. You're looking a very you're looking at a very different data set that's measuring very different things. Yeah, I mean you can improve even with the undergrads, but I think a lot of the innovative work goes and collects unique data from unique subjects. So like I have a friend, Alex Emos, I just saw him present this uh, very interesting, it's, it's on, in the topic of finance, where he went and looked at institutional investors, mm-hmm. tons of you know, data. These are people with big positions, um, and found that they're, they're actually quite skilled at buying, um, buying stocks, but they aren't so skilled at selling them. Uh, and it seems to be distinct skills. And it's very distinct skills because it's easy to buy. That's the easy part. Selling is where the money gets made. Those are not um, equal level of difficulty things. I'm absolutely not surprised to hear selling demonstrates less skill than buying. Is, is that basically what... what yeah, no, so the, the finding is that they were unloading <coughs> um, extreme winners um, mm-hmm. too quickly um, before they really exploited the you know information advantage that they had. So they made a good job choosing it, but they sold it too soon. A classic mistake. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the original 1985 hot hand paper, which, as we discussed earlier, became canon in the world of behavioral finance. Uh, When did you first start to get an inkling that the original thesis might not have been all it seemed to be? So the original inkling was that people sometimes overreact. It's that it's a myth. The thing doesn't exist. Why does that generate such a strong intuitive pushback from people? I mean, I have my thesis. I'm curious as to yours. Yeah, I think everyone has some experience in their own athletic performance mm-hmm. where they have moments where they're particularly locked in, uh-huh. and they, they realize that. And outside of athletic performance, you just have these moments where you're in the, you're in the zone. Right. That's the best word for it. Um, you're, you're just all, you're firing on all cylinders. And you would expect that you would see that um, somehow in basketball data as well. So, so my personal experience, I, I used to play hoops as a kid, but as I've gotten older, I've become a tennis player. And I know from personal experience, it takes a good 20 minutes for me to calibrate my forehand so that I am consistently hitting the ball more or less towards where I want it, more or less with the right amount of spin, more or less with the right height. But it's not something that I could just grab a racket and swing and, oh, there it is. It takes a while to, too fast, too much whip, keep it, loosen your wrist, bring it around, make sure you're dropping the head. Like, I'm running through a series of steps in my head. Hey, you're too close. Watch your footwork, all the, one after another. And I am now good enough to know I suck. I'm in that Dunning-Kruger drop where, oh, you know, I used to think I was good. Now I realize I'm really, I'm good enough to know how good I actually am not. Um, but it takes a while to calibrate that. I imagine a basketball player in the midst of a game has to go through some sort of fine-tuning of their shooting. You can warm up all you want um, when you're just shooting by yourself before the game, but when people are on you and you're running, it has to be a very, very different set of circumstances, or am I overstating this? Well, I mean, that's that's the strongest intuition is, mm-hmm. is based on this calibration thing. I mean, there's probably other elements. We might get to that later. Um, but if you look at um, yeah, I mean, if you're sitting on the bench for 10 minutes and then you come off, um, that's very different. I mean, 
in the NFL, you see field goal kickers warming up before right. they go on. You don't see that so much in the NBA. They don't have like an extra hoop on the side. That's right. <laughs> so I'd imagine, yeah, that's an important element there. What else is so intuitively attractive about the idea of the hot hand? Is it simply just the zone? Is it the adrenaline and the endorphins? Why do we think that, hey, suddenly I'm on, I'm on a streak. Why do we believe that streak is going to continue? And I'm not talking about blackjack or roulette or games of chance. These are really games of skill played at the highest level. So why we believe it? Um, I would imagine sometimes when we believe it, it's not really there. And so there is this feeling, you know, you know part, part of the feeling is feedback, right? You, you, right. you, you see that you're successful. It gives you some confidence, you know, so it's not always simply this zone that emerges. Um, sometimes you get a few successes in a row and it gives you more confidence in your training. Right. You don't overthink it and you return and trust your training. So you're essentially unconscious and you bring that. Whereas mm -hmm. if you maybe miss a few in a row, you lose your confidence, you start making adjustments and if you're making adjustments, you're not going to have much consistency. So let's go back to the original research. Tom Gilovich, one of the co-authors, said about the work that you and uh, Adam did, this is unlike a lot of stuff that's come down the pike since 1985. This is truly interesting. How encouraging it was that from one of the original authors who ostensibly disproved the hot hand? I mean, it's always nice when um, somebody appreciates your work, especially someone of Tom Gilovich's stature. Um, at the time that he said that, our, our paper, while it had gone through the public peer review process, it hadn't gone through the formal one. And so just last week, our paper was finally published. It's online, not in the print edition yet, in Econometrica, which is you know, a top journal in economics. There's mm -hmm. these top five. They're kind of all equal. Right. Um, and you know, so now it's been kind of formally um, taken in. So I think Tom Gilovich might have a different opinion um, now that it's gone through this process. So, so the paper is ready to be published or was just published? Yeah, so the no November issue of Econometrica, mm -hmm. um, it came out. and That's got to be very exciting. Oh, very exciting, yeah. It's something so, to celebrate. So what's the takeaway from the original research? What was it that was wrong in the structure of the original Myth of the Hot Hand paper? Right, so um, the original Hot Hand paper... They're interested in seeing if people do better after recent success than after recent failure. Mm -hmm. um, that was their most important measure. Like, is your probability of success increased when you've hit in a few in a row versus if you've missed a few in a row? Right. And well, we don't know what someone's probability is. It seems like our best guess would be would just look at the percentage of time they make it, right? And so they just look at all the events when you've had a streak of recent successes and all the events when you have a streak of recent failures, and just see what the change in your shooting percentage is between right. those two conditions. And you know that's very natural and very intuitive to expect that would be your best guess. And they do that, and they don't find any difference. Um, and so that's how the problem was set up. Okay. So yep. before we get to your solution, yep. the, the immediate pushback is, hey, after a shooter gets on a bit of a streak, the defense collapses on them, they become... They're forced to either pass the ball more or take more difficult shots. At the time in, in 1985, there was no way to account for that difference. However, in the intervening years, every shot gets marked. You, you described this in one of your um, uh, publications recently. Explain the degree of difficulty that is now tracked on every single basketball shot that's taken. Right, so there there's a... It's a new company now. I don't remember the company, but SportView was the first company that did this, where they have optical tracking of the 
the ball like the of exact the players, place the where the person is shooting. I mean, the precision isn't super high, but it's you know, it gets in the general area, and so you can control for a lot more factors than you could say in 1985, where they had the 76ers and they're just looking at the play-by-play outcomes. Right. right. And so, you know, even in that data, what they would find is, yes, they'd have this evidence of the defense adjusting to what they believe to be a hot hand, making it more difficult for the player. But the player still has to shoot from time to time to keep the defense honest. Mm-hmm. And so the important thing isn't so much as the player doing better in the context of the game, but does it help the teammates if they're hot, because then it opens up things for the teammates. Makes sense. Yeah, so the, the innovations that have happened, I think the first innovation actually was um, Justin Rao, who's uh, you know the head, head economist at HomeAway. He was the first one to actually come out and, and measure how many defenders are around the player and try to control from these things in a different way by using the videos and show that, yes, there's a lot of evidence that there's this defense factor. And if you just control for a few of these things, the effects that they had found in the previous study went away. So in other words, what looks like it's random is you're shooting the same percentage, but with a whole lot more defensive activity on you. Therefore, it's a continuation of the, of the streak. Yeah, so he didn't necessarily find evidence of the streak there because he controlled for a subset of factors. But as you add more, more controls, it looks like there might be some evidence there. But these are very difficult things to measure in the context of the game. The original study had this critical test, and it's been repeated with other teams, um, where they take them and they pay them to shoot the basketball. You so know, in other words, you're, you're not playing during a live game. You're right. just doing foul shooting or three-point shooting or whatever. Exactly. Or, or you'll look at the NBA three-point shooting contest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in those studies, you can get rid of the defense and get a little more, you know, zero in on your question a bit more. Let's talk a little bit about the surprising math of coin flips. My best guess and my understanding of statistics has always been if you take a true coin and flip it, the odds of a head or a tail is 50-50. This is regardless of what came before it. Coins have no memory. But you found something surprising in the data set after you flip a coin 100 times and you were to pick a specific series, the odds are somewhat different. Explain that. Yeah, so my co-author, Adam Sanjurjo, and I, after having watched the NBA three-point shooting contest, we had a particular player, Craig Hodges, who was obviously hot. And we went and used the original analysis on his data, and it said that he wasn't. And that was puzzling. And so we had to go and see, well, we don't really know how Craig Hodges generated his shots. It's kind of a black box. But let's create an environment where we have the ground truth, where we know what's happening. And so coin flips is, is a world like this. So you can actually go and flip a coin many, many times or do it on a computer mm-hmm. and see what do you get if you analyze. Like We're interested, is the probability of heads after a few heads different than the probability of heads after a few tails? We know that's the same. That's We have the ground truth. Right. But now let's go out and generate that data and make our best guess from that data. What's our best guess is the percentage of heads that you get after a few heads in a row the same as the percentage of heads you get after a few tails in a row? And analyzing it in the way they analyzed it, we found that, no, it's different. The percentage of tails after a few heads in a row is higher. Which which is so counterintuitive because prospectively, so understand before people lose their mind and start sending emails, what we're not talking about is looking forward in a live situation. Right. No matter what the previous, with uh, with a true coin, you could have a thousand heads in a row, highly improbable, but not mathematically impossible. The odds on that next flip are still going to be 50-50. That's not what we're saying. Right. We're saying flip a coin a hundred times, look at the data set, right. and then go back and randomly pick 
any head in that order or any tail in the order, what are the odds that the next flip right. is a head or a tail? Right. And it turns out that's not 50%. That's correct. So explain that because it's, it's a complete, it blows people's minds because you've been taught over and over again, hey, coins have no memory, but that's not what this is. This is an existing data set. When we randomly pull any of those flips, what are the probabilities as to the outcome in the next flip after it's already been done? Right. So, so how do you end up with 40% instead of 50%? So the complete explanation would take some time, mm -hmm. um, but we can kind of get it in intuition. Um, if you flip a coin 100 times, there's going to be a certain number of heads and tails there when, it's, when you're done. About 50-50, but About no 50, guarantee. No guarantee, but it'll, it's going to be some number. Now, if you just choose any flip, your best guess, just choose a flip. Your best guess is 50%. I, if I choose flip 42, for example, right. my best guess is 50%, um, right. or 50% heads. That's my, you know... And so that's different, though, than if I choose flip 42 because flip 41 is a heads. Mm -hmm. So if I choose one of the flips where the previous flip is a heads, or just choose a, a flip that's a head and see what the next flip is, you know, same way of looking at it, now there's something else. Because the flip you chose, because the previous flip was a head, is using information about the outcomes of adjacent flips mm -hmm. and that information kind of gets contained within your flip and that's this is this gets a little complicated but one way to think about it is you've taken a heads away from the finite right. number of heads that you have right and you can't see it again you've reduced that data set and the remaining tails now should be slightly yeah, so higher than heads it shifts and there's another element that uses the kind of spatial way they're arranged that makes it a bit stronger uh -huh. um, but that 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 would take that's some a time. longer explanation yeah this smells to me slightly like the monty hall problem is there any element to, in the Monty Hall problem you go from choosing one in three to one in two so suddenly what was a 33 percent chance becomes a 50 50 why not make the switch uh, that that is a little counterintuitive but once you see the statistics it you can't unsee it it always you always should make the change it, there is a is there a tiny element of this in that more than tiny so my co-author, Adam Sinhoro, and I also wrote another paper connecting this to the Monty Hall problem and explaining it via this principle from Bridge, which is the principle of restricted choice, which is essentially the intuition of Bayes' rule. And so the way to think about it in the Monty Hall problem, you have these three doors, right? So you're on this game show. There's three doors. Well, let's make this our problem exactly the same as Monty Hall. Except it's 100 doors, not yeah. necessarily three doors. So but, it becomes much harder to... We can make it three doors. So, really? So your game show, you're on a game show, and usually you have this car and two goats, and you've got to find the car, and right. you, there's a car behind one of the doors, you've got to guess. Well, let's get rid of the goats and cars. Now let's just flip a coin behind each door. Right. So each, behind each door, it's 50-50, but you're the contestant. The host knows what the outcome of the flips are. You don't. Mm -hmm. You want to guess, hey, where is the, where's the heads? So let's say you want to find the heads. Um, so you guess, you know, door three. Now, if you guess door three, let's say the host looks behind the door you didn't guess, door one and two, and he's going to reveal a heads if he can. So right. let's say the host opens door one and shows you a head. Do you want to switch or do you want to stay? If you're looking for the heads, you want to stay. If you're looking for the tails, you want to switch. Now, the intuition is not going to be clear immediately, but if you think about now the host, looking at door one and two, used information about both doors to determine which door to open up to. Mm -hmm. Now, if both doors were heads, 
the host could have opened door two. Doesn't matter, right. But if it was heads, tails, the door, host had to open door one because the host is going to show you a heads. Right. If you can. Right. He doesn't want to show yeah. you a tail because that's what you're looking yeah. to avoid. That's and, the goat to you. Yeah. So the world, we don't know which world we're in, where the first is heads and the second is tails, or the first is heads and the you know, second is heads. But the world where it's heads, tails is the world where the host is more restricted. The, the host has to open door one. Right. And so the world and that's... And so that you should avoid door two in those circumstances because it's a higher probability of being... Yeah, if you're, if you're hunting for the heads, you should, adore, you should avoid door two because tails is more likely because in that world of heads, tails, the host had to open door one. Right. And it's... You know, yeah. So it's a higher yeah. probability. So that door three, even though it's a coin that's flipped independent of the other two... two. When you're dealing with that data set, you're better off with three because of the circumstances that led the host to pick one and not pick two. Right. That, that makes some rational degree of sense. Once you get the Monty Hall aspect of this, it makes a whole lot more sense. It just, it just seems uh, it's quite fascinating. We were discussing um, the coin flip issue and the hot hand scenario. Let's circle back to that hot hand. Uh, and the original research. The original research said that if there's a streak of three hits in basketball or three misses in basketball, the odds of the next shot going in or not is whatever the shooter's historical shooting percentage is, uh, which sort of seems that there's no hot hand. But that presumes, after a streak, that their next shot should be dead center in their percentage, you found out it should be worse than that. Explain. Exactly. So that's the counterintuitive thing. If you go out and you watch a player shoot a basketball and you look at their shooting percentage after a streak of hits and compare it to their shooting percentage after a streak of misses and you find that it's the same, then the intuitive thing is to say, oh, they're just, they have the same rate. But actually you would expect them to do worse after hitting a Explain that because that's the most fascinating part of it. Someone is on a shooting streak we, we, you take a data set of a whole run of shots. What do you find after the streak, and why is that? So yeah. you said you find their percentage actually goes down after a streak. Um, in the world where there's no hot hand, where they're a consistent shooter, their percentage will go down after a streak in the data, not in reality. The probability is always the same, but we don't observe the probability. We calculate the percentage, and that's where the biases come in. Right. And so the original authors found that the shooting percentage was around the same, and that's correct. We go and we check, and they were right. They, they report, they did all the analysis in that sense, the calculations correctly. Mm-hmm. But the, the mistake is understanding the benchmark. You have to go out and say, okay, now let's look at the world where we know um, we can control it. So on a computer, you can say we can generate coin flips, or we can make a player that has no hot hand, and then look at how that player does when we ana- analyze the data, and we realize, oh, they should do worse after a few in a row. So once you adjust for that bias, you find out that actually, if they're doing the same, that's indicative that they're doing about 10 percentage points or more better after hitting a few in a row than missing a few in a few row, and that's huge. That's like the difference between the median and the best NBA three-point shooter. Thereby confirming the hot hand. So I have to challenge the data set because, again, everything about this, each step along the way is so counterintuitive. So why would we expect a shooter who's on a streak, who's in the zone, who has the hot hand, whatever we want to call it, why would we expect his shooting percentage to be lower after they hit several shots in a row. 
Why would we expect it to be lower for a real human or for a for a, 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 anybody a, for a professional for a real human? When you look at a data set of here's here's all the NBA streak shooters or all the NBA shooters, what does the data show after a streak? Their shooting percentage actually becomes. So if you're talking about live action games, we have those issues that we spoke about. Mm -hmm. The defense will adjust, and so that becomes a little bit more complicated. So, so let's talk about three point contests. Yes, yeah, so three point contests. Contest. So, so if the hot hand didn't exist in a world like that, mm -hmm. we would expect players to shoot worse after making a few in a row in the data. So they're just simply just mean reversion. Is that all um, it is? Um, it's not mean reversion. It's the same thing we talked about with the coin flips, right? Mm -hmm. And so as a researcher, you're taking the data after it's already been generated, and you're picking through it, and you're looking only at the events that you're interested in, right? You're looking at their probability of success given recent success, so you're just picking out those events when they had recent success, or say, where they just made three in a row. So you're changing the data set, so now there's three less. So if you someone shoots three in a row, when we're looking at the data set, let's say they've shot 20 shots, and after three in a row, how they do? Well, guess what? You've pulled three hits out of the set, meaning there's a disproportionate number of misses left. Yeah, that's part of the bias. And, okay. And there's this other element that we didn't quite get into is that you you kind of you have this essentially a stopping rule. Uh -huh. So as you collect the data, the moment they miss it, you're not interested anymore in looking because right. you're going to wait for a streak of hits again. Right. So you've kind of you, you you're biased towards stopping at a miss. So you might get a miss right away. Right. Then everything you collected. In those events, 100% of their shots are misses because you just collected one shot and they're all misses. Right. right. And so you're, you're kind of biasing towards collecting misses in a Got sense. Got it. Yeah. That, that, that's, quite, that's quite fascinating. Yeah. So what other areas like this are you studying? Because it's really, it's really quite, quite fascinating stuff. Are there other sport myths that you're looking at that have a probabilistic element that's very counterintuitive? Or is this pretty much the biggest one out there? Um, this is the biggest one that we're studying. A lot yeah. of what you're doing is statistical and probability work at a level that the average sports fan is really not familiar with. For, forget the live game. When you explain relative to a three-point shooting contest, it's really not so much about the streakiness of the shooter, but the mathematics of the data set. And, right. and I think that is really counterintuitive but it doesn't seem anyone's been able to disprove what you and your co-author have found. So there have been a lot of challenges to that original study, a lot of and legitimate challenges. Mm -hmm. You know, there are issues with um, what they call statistical power, right? So we have, we have a friend uh, and colleague, Daniel Stone, who made this nice point that you have this thing called measurement error. We want to know how do you do after hitting a few in a row. Um, that's what we actually look at. But what we're really interested in is how well you do when you're hot. So hitting a few in a row, you're not always hot. Right. And so you can underestimate how hot someone is if you use only the data that you can observe, which is zeros and ones. So right. the, the, you know, the econometrician, the statistician has kind of a, a weak measure of, of that. So you know, these, these, this kind of evidence is... Um, Just the mathematical yeah, evidence? Yeah. It, do you ever do interviews of players? Do you ever say to them, hey, were you in the zone? How did you feel? How... how yeah, you know, how do you find that data set? So that data, um, the original study looked at data like that. They spoke to the 76ers and they asked them kind of qualitative questions. Do you get in the zone? And you feel hot? Are you, you feel on hot? The street? And, and, and they, they all do. Right. Right. Um, but it's it's hard to work with that. That's just looking at whether they 
believe in it or not. Right. Um, but then getting a sense of do they believe in it too much or not, that get, that's, get, gets a bit harder because you have to be able to somehow measure, you know, you, they have to decide when are they hot. You know, so you, you really need a lot more cooperation from, say, like a coach or player to kind of sit there and maybe watch the games with you or something like that. I mean, that would be maybe a, uh, a better way of testing their, you know, their beliefs. So, so when um, Tversky and Gilovich's original study came out, I'm forgetting the third person. Robert Vallone. Right, the V yeah, in, yeah. in GVT. When, when that study came out, there was a tremendous amount of pushback from coaches amount around the league. We mentioned Rudd, Red Arbach. Your study comes out, and you basically say, no, you professional coaches, you were right. There is a hot hand. There is a streak. What sort of feedback have you gotten from players and coaches about your research? Well, we're not entirely sure whether players and coaches were ever frazzled by the original study. Mm -hmm. So, you know, validating their beliefs, for them, they say, yeah, we kind of never believed that result to begin with. So, right. so, so we haven't gone and sought the opinion of, you know, players and coaches because it's, it's not so clear how far that original conclusion reached into that world. Um, well, it did, um, especially you can see announcers mentioning it. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, you know, so so when you what about some of the outlier players? If you look at a Michael Jordan um or a um Steph Curry guys who literally become just unconscious and what Reggie Miller is another one. Yeah. And the most improbable shots on a consistent basis start to drop. When when you look at players like that, do different players seem to have a different set of streakiness, a different hot hand? Can you can you calibrate how much of a hot hand different players have? So using game data, that's a bit more of a challenge. So um, my co-author Adam and I looked at Spanish semi-pro players. We could collect a lot more data, and we had more of their cooperation. Mm -hmm. And there seemed to be a clear difference with players. I mean, there's the obvious one is that you know centers and forwards, people don't, that don't shoot that often. Right. It's hard for them to get on a roll. Right. Because you have to be consistent, and they're kind of not that consistent when they right. shoot. They don't so touch the ball all that often and all that long. Right. And so, you know, those are the people you'd expect maybe, you know, they can't really sustain a streak. And, and that's what we find. You know, so there's some players that can and some players that seem like they can't. Um, if we go to real NBA players, you know, that's a bit of a challenge. So we have looked at the three-point shooting contest, and uh -huh. we have a paper on that. Um, the, the issue with the three-point shooting contest is a lot of the players don't have much more than, say, 100 shots total in the contest. You know, may, some have a few more. You have a Craig Hodges who has over 500 in our data, and we find evidence there. Um, but what we can say is that among all the three-point shooting contest contestants, there were way more that did better after a few in a row than making a few in a row than missing a few in a row than you'd expect. But you don't really know which of them are really hot. You just know there's more of them than you'd expect, but you need more data to be really confident when you pick out an individual. So at, at this point in the state of research on the hot hand, do you have any doubt that the hot hand exists? I don't have any doubt that the hot hand exists, what you mean by the hot hand is where the doubts come in. Because there's many different mechanisms that can lead to evidence in the data that your success after recent success is higher. You know, that rate's higher than after recent failure. So, so uh, the confidence factor, the endorphin factor, the uh, further pressure that the other team is placing, all those things add up. Uh, you ask a player, they're going to say, yeah, of course you get hot. But when you ask the statistician, the data supports it as well. Right. Quite fascinating. 
We have been speaking to Joshua Miller. He is an economics professor and researcher at the University of Alicante in uh, Spain. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and we continue discussing all things statistical sports and behavior. Uh, You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. Uh, We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz or check out my daily column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Welcome to the podcast. So, Josh, I have to tell you, uh, I was very much a skeptic. Um, a little background. So, first, uh, I'm a fan of Gilovich for a long time. When I... You could noise we don't care <laughs> when i started in this business a hundred years ago as a trader it was before the bad old days of behavioral economics had made its way to wall street and i found a book by gilovich how we know what isn't so it, it was the first mass book more or popular book N- not that it was all that popular but it was the first book for a popular audience that had an enormous behavioral finance component to it. So I found him absolutely intriguing. He led me down the rabbit hole of behavioral finance, and it's been an enormous influence on my um, professional career because uh, very often when I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on, according to what the head trader was saying, behavioral finance gave a much better answer. And the same is true when you're looking at markets or the economy or what people get wrong. So my bias was to say, uh, Tversky, Gilovich, these are two legends. Of course they're right. But I have to tell you, this, having gotten through as much of your paper as I could until the formulas start to show up, it's a compelling argument that when we look at the data set, players on a streak from within that data set should have a lower shooting percentage following three in a row than you would intuitively inspect, expect. And when they don't shoot l- worse, it in and of itself is evidence of the hot hand. It's such an eloquent and unexpected way to do the analysis of the hot hand. I have to ask, how did you guys come upon that? I mean, I would never, 
I'm not a statistician, but I would never have thought, because so much of it is so intuitive, I would not have thought, hey, let's look at what the expected shot is, because with coins, it should be 50-50. Why would you expect it to be anything less following three in a row? How, how did you sort of work your way towards that research? So, you know, both my co-author, Adam Sanjurjo, and I, we didn't see any problem in that respect um, with the original paper. So we mm -hmm. didn't say, oh, they're clearly making a mistake here. No one did. You know, s since we discovered this thing, we've gone and we've asked statisticians, people that are very good, they look at the, that test and they say, oh, you know, maybe it's underpowered or they might have some little quibbles, but they don't have any expectation that you would shoot worse after funeral. In order to do that, you actually have to go out and simulate or go sit down and really calculate. And so it doesn't strike you in any way. So we discovered it, you know, it was a bit of a stroke of luck. Um, we were looking at the NBA three-point contest data. We had to analyze it very quickly using a method different than the way we used it. So we just used the method of the original study, which was much quicker to run. So we ran that, and we found this player who we knew was hot, and I mentioned that earlier, Craig Hodges, and he shot no better after making a few in a row, and that just didn't make sense. Was was that a brute force, quit down and dirty? And so so you moved to something a little more um, sophisticated. What's the better word for that? Yeah. So so the sophistication came later. So we we you know we just took the test they used in the original study and that measure, and it wasn't showing anything, and we that didn't agree with our perception of what we saw in those videos. And, 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 and some of the elementary things he did, like he hit 19 in a row at one point, never missed more than five, and he was around 50% shooter, which would be you'd never expect from right. a coin. And so, okay. 19 so, in a row is astonishing. It's, 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 yeah, it's incredible. So then we went and we said, well, what if he were a coin? What if Craig Hodges was a coin? So let's just generate his shots as if he was a coin, where he's really 50-50. Right. And re repeat this. Like, imagine we did this many, many times, and look what we'd expect from all, you know, if we run this many times, and we see, oh, you'd actually shoot worse after making a funeral. And that seems very, and we were struck. We were like, this doesn't seem like it's right, but this is what the analysis is giving us. We have to understand this. This is what the data is saying. So, so two things we've discussed. One is after you have a streak of six in a row and you have a finite number of shots, well, now there are six less heads in, the, in that group, so therefore there's a higher probability of tails after that. That makes perfect sense, right? Because you're just changing the remaining data set by what you're looking at. Given a fixed data set. Given a fixed number of coins, fixed yes. number of shots. Um, and then, of course, mean reversion assumes after a long streak of heads, you should start to see a streak of tails. Well, that's which the I, gambler's fallacy a little bit. So there, let's right? let's go into that. Explain yeah. that. Yeah, so I mean the gambler's fallacy is this idea that comes out of the casino and it's been known for hundreds of years. Right. That if you see, say, five, six blacks in a row at a roulette table, it feels like roulette that the red must be more likely. Right. right. Um, and so people get drawn into this and they, they, they start betting more maybe and uh and but it's still 49-49 and then yeah, the two yeah, it's, greens. Yeah, exactly. But it's almost 50-50 regardless. Right. So the, in reality the probabilities haven't changed. But yeah. but when you but yeah. when you look at a when you look at a fixed data set that you expect to be 50-50, yeah. not not prospectively at the roulette table in real time, but we know that hey there's 100 coin flips, we're going to assume half of them are uh, tails and half are heads. After you've had a wrong, long streak of heads, the assumption is that out of that full data set, 
there should be more tales coming up. I'm, I'm in real time. It's truly the gambler's fallacy. Right. But when you're looking retrospectively with the data set, it, it's basically just a variation of, hey, you've already exhausted a lot of heads. Therefore, there are more tales out there. Yes, exactly. That, that, and and as we mentioned before, there's a little bit. There's an extra wrinkle on top. You know, it, that it determines on how you know how are these streaks ordered. So like when mm -hmm. you when you pick a pick up a shot because the previous three were heads, the shot you pick up of these are either heads or tails, but it's much more likely to be tails, one, because of the heads that were removed, right. two, because if it were a tails, you've interrupted the streak and you've, you can't begin until, you have to wait until you begin. So, yeah. so there's, you're pulling a big chunk of the possible selections out, so all the streaks come out, they're all heads. So you're not pull it, picking that one, and and plus the total number of heads that you've used. So what's left becomes, just from a data set group, what's yes. left to become a forty percent, not fifty percent probability, right. which is which is fast. So you guys are doing this research. At what point do you say, "Holy cow, this is really a fascinating discovery"? Like it's it's not just a tiny chance. 10% is a huge number in, in this sort of data series. When did you guys look at each other and say, hey, this is something really important? We knew it was a big deal the moment we saw it. Really? We were on the phone. We were you didn't say to yourself, this has to be wrong. 10%, how did nobody pick this up? In 30 years, nobody has seen this. So we, we had, this is two years after we'd begun the project. Well, maybe not that long, but almost two years. And we had read every paper in the literature, so we knew no one had had, had nobody had seen this. No, no one had said so. We knew it was a big deal for that literature. So the only question we had is, "Hey, is this valid? How new? <laughs> well, I mean, we'd run. The, you know, we knew the You know, we can trust the computer, right? I mean, I mean, of course, you have to make sure you didn't make an error in your code. Right. So you have to sit down and do the simple example to make sure you didn't do a calculation error. So once we did that, we're like, okay, this is clearly a true thing. Now the only question is, did anyone know this about coin flips before? Is this a new discovery about coin flips. And yes, there's some mathematical things that are somewhat related, but no, it was even new in that dimension. So we knew we had something really big. And that was exciting because you have this moment where you're the only person in the world that knows something and it's kind of it's an exciting moment. I feel that way every day I wake up and I have that sensation. So I can appreciate you uh probably not as solidly based as as yours. Uh, at least that's what my <laughs> my wife would tell me. So that's amazing. You guys come up with this Incredible breakthrough. Nobody has has found this. It's been decades, and it's it's been widely accepted. It's become part of the canon. By the it's classic confirmation bias, which is so um, reflexive and meta. There is a study that says people are fooled by randomness and think there are streaks, which turns out perhaps to be confirmation bias by behaviorists who are warning people against being fooled by randomness and seeing what they want to see. It, it's got a little bit of Mandelbrot reflectiveness built into it. It's, it. it's quite amazing. Yeah, so, you know, in a sense, that mistake proves kind of the spirit of the general point about misinterpreting randomness. Yes. Even the best of us, the best researchers there are out there, still make these mistakes due to randomness. And while saying others are making the mistake, you're making the mistake. <laughs> Even within, so they accidentally prove their point, which is it's very easy to be fooled by a random data set into thinking there's a broader conclusion there until subsequent research discovers that 
hey, this isn't quite as random as you think it is. There's a 10% gap between true randomness and the remaining data set. That, right. that's, quite, that's quite fascinating. So you guys look at each other and say, hey, we're onto something real. How did it progress from there? What year was this? This was, this was 20 February 2015 okay. when we found this. And we knew, so we knew it was important. So um, we presented our work. And when you see the eyes light up, you realize it's even bigger than you thought right. it was. And then you realize, hey, wait a minute, we don't have the paper yet. And now other people know about it. Who did you present it to originally? Um, so uh, at Oxford University, that was the first kind of reveal. Right. And you, you, know, you see the eyes light up in the room. Um, Are you genuinely concerned at that moment, uh-oh, someone's going to try and beat us to publication? Yes. And so we put everything aside. Right. And we just we, we, we went to the grind. We, right. Within two months, we had the paper. and it was No one was going to catch you at that point. Right. You, you had a, enough of a head start, and you were the original people who found this. So two months later, the preliminary papers come out. Yeah, we put Where it you, online. Yep. You po you post it online, right. NBER and everywhere else, or yeah, wherever you know. Just get that timestamp, right? Where, wherever finer white papers are, are sold. Yeah. Um, and so that's what April of 2015. So the pa the paper went online June of 2015. Okay, that was our. First. What's the response to that? Um, the response was uh, big. Uh, so. A statistician at Columbia University, Andrew Gelman, who has this blog. And Everybody's heard of Andrew Gelman. Or let me rephrase that. Anybody who's interested in statistics knows who Gelman at Columbia is. Fair, fair statement? Yeah, he's at the crossroads of pretty much all the social sciences, sciences when it comes to data and statistics. And, right. And so getting attention from Andrew Gelman. Huge. It's huge. And that, that was, you know. It, High fives you know, all around. Yeah, and but it's also scary when you get attention from Andrew Gelman because if you made a mistake, it's open peer review season. Right, they're getting in there in the comments. He'll get you. You know, like they're just having fun. They love talking about data, and but, sure. and they're not going to worry about how you feel about it because they're just interested in the the main points. Like, what do the statistics say? And you're, you know, you're sitting there sweating bullets, hoping you got you didn't make a mistake somewhere. It, in the, it's at that level. This isn't you know Twitter fights and ad hominem attacks. It's Hey, let's get into the math. Let's see if they did their crunching their numbers correctly. Right. Let's see if we can find an error in their modeling. What what did Gelman discover? So Gelman went and did the work himself, and he found what he found agreed with what we found. And so he said, "Hey, guess what? There is a hot hand." That was his post, and then it kind of snowballed from there. That's it. So then there's a Wall Street Journal piece on it. Yes. And then there was an ESPN or a Sports Illustrated. Or it's one of the sports. Well, there are, there are, yeah, there are, there at is that this, point, it just there goes is this crazy. ridiculous. Like we were like, okay, when's the 15 minutes going to end? You right. Know, you know, like, but I guess the you know the news world is so kind of balkanized by this point that like it, it hopped it's not, from subject to subject. subject yeah. It just kept rotating and ro I, I saw something, and you guys published another a number of fair. I have to say. Your published popular stuff, I think you undersold the math on this because it's not that you dumbed it down. It's that you were so circumspect and so maybe modest is the right word. Like if I'm a different person than you, I would have written, written something that said, dudes, listen up. The whole no hot hand things, let us show you why that's not true. Here's the math. It's 10%. It's a giant impact. And here's why. Like, I thought you guys were very circumspect 
in your what was it the conversation or the ringer? yeah the, the Australian conversation uh, yeah that was like a fairly modest discussion you know I would have been like hey pay attention to this we're changing uh, an understanding of sports streakiness this is a big deal what other applications are there of of the finding of both the flips of coins and the streakiness of shooters where else can this be applied? Are, are there other uses of this mathematical, or I should call it statistical, observation? Yes. So the the bias that that we found has uh, an you know it can it can manifest itself in many areas. So it's not just about time, right? So we're looking at like how how you did recently. Does that affect how you do in the future or how you do next? Right. right. We, we found some biases there, but it's not it's not about time. It's essentially about space because you're looking at data and. We represent time with space because we have, you know, period one, period two, period three. They're all next to each other, right? And so you have this kind of one-dimensional spatial thing continuum that, along a line, along the line. But it, it can go in either direction. So it's not, you know, time's arrow that's determining it, right? Right. If, if I hit three in a row, the chance that the previous one that just preceded that streak is a, heads is actually lower too, um, for the exact same reason. For the exact same reason. So, so which means that the actual streakiness of the player isn't relevant to the prior one even though we would expect it to be relevant to the subsequent one, it's all the same statistical data set, prior, less, yeah. less heads in the remaining pool, et cetera. Yeah, so you can extend this beyond time and talk about space, right? So if you're interested in, you know, if I'm surrounded by, you know, red people, mm -hmm. am I more likely to be blue? You might go and, hey, let's look at the data set and this see. This is the ping pong balls in the vase statistical problem. Yeah, so you know, the, people study segregation and clustering, you know, right. and where people live and things like this, and and so you might go into a data set and use this intuitive measure, like let's see if I'm more likely to be blue if I'm surrounded by reds. Right. Um, you have the same issue here. Now, you know, if I were a blue, I've kind of excluded other possibilities of being surrounded by reds wherever that blue is. Would right. that actually makes blue more likely for some of the same reasons why we have this bias, you know, when we're talking about time, and so there. are are potentially many other areas where biases similar to this could could manifest themselves, where so people I, may be stumbling in. So I remember a couple of years ago the cancer clusters around power lines, um, which a lot of statisticians came out and said, "Well, no, this is just uh, you know the heads and tails problem again. You you have lot, all these non clusters around other power lines. So if it's a causal element, why is it causing it here but not a half mile down the same power line?" It, it's just a random aggregation of data, and you're seeing something that it, it – of course you're going to get 10 heads in a row if you flip a coin a million times. That's all you're seeing. Uh, do you have an application to those sort of, of cognitive issues? Um, so we haven't found the specific application. To be honest, we haven't scoured that literature. Um, you know, we have found papers that have measures of clustering, like how likely am I going to live next to someone of, who's like me, you know, versus not like me, depending on who's around. Um, and there are some measures that are biased for a similar reason um, that we have this bias. Now, in the cancer cluster one, um, you know, that's a, that's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, and it's and it's because of, you know, what you say is this kind of blade of grass fallacy that, you know, you know there's lots of blade of grass you know, you shoot a speck of water and it hits the blade of grass, the blade of grass, oh, look, I'm so lucky it was coming for me. Well, it had to hit some blade of right. grass, right? And it's, it's Someone's got to win the lottery, Someone's right? got to win the lottery. You know, the chances that somebody wins the lottery is super high. The chances when you that have it's three, you, <laughs> not so much. Yeah. So that's interesting. So before I get to my favorite questions I ask all my guests, 
I have to ask you, what else are you guys um, working on? What, um, are, what other research is, is coming from the minds that brought you um, proof that the hot hand exists? Well, you know, so in, in, in our world, it's very tempting to move on to the next one before, you know, finishing what you started, right? So you and, have not exhausted everything out of this one uh, one piece of data. Right. So we, ha we have a lot of kind of, uh, you know, I's to dot, T's to cross, but, you know, a little bit more than that. You know, you want to you finish and get the message out, but also share, you know, the other insights that we have. Because, you know, well, that this, come out of the same research. Comes out of, you know, so this is our, you know, say the main insight, but there are other very subtle and interesting insights that we have. Because, you know, when you master something yeah, and you come back after working on something for a while, there's a lot to share. So tell us some, what, what other insights can be derived from from the hot hand papers. Yeah, so there's another um, result in the, in that study, um, in um, Gilovich and Tversky's study, that Gilovich mentions in the book that you, you talked about earlier, which is, okay, so they kind of got that people, uh, you know, that they measured hot hand in a certain way, and they, they realized, well, maybe we're not capturing everything that means about the hot hand, and maybe some players are, are, are seeing something that we, the statisticians, the econometricians, you know, aren't measuring. And they, f they went and s had people predict and bet on outcomes. And they found that they, their bets don't really correlate with the outcomes. It, huh. And so that's kind of evidence. Well, okay, well, even if we're not measuring everything, look, if the players were seeing something, you'd think they would bet successfully. Right. And that you could also take that as evidence that now that there is a hot hand there, well, it's le at least it's evidence that they're somehow not using, exploiting it in a profitable way. But there was actually a mistake as well in that in that in that analysis, which is, even if someone were perfect at detecting the hot hand, they knew you know you can imagine Ann and Bob. Bob's a shooter. Ann is you know a predictor. She's observing Bob. She knows when Bob's hot, and whenever Bob's hot, she's going to predict that Bob's going to make the shot. Right now, you would expect if she's good, then that good, then her bets, her predictions are going to correlate really well um, with Bob's outcome. Right. But actually you wouldn't expect that. And that's, that's another counterintuitive thing is that while she's perfect at detecting his state, the outcome of the state is noisy. You're just getting one draw from Bob's urn. So even if right. Bob's moving from a 70% to an 85% probability shooter, if you only take one draw from that urn, you're not getting a very good signal on Bob's state. You need and millions. You need a lot. to get that in the Yeah, and world. so even if you're getting many predictions from Ann and Bob, you're still only getting, you know, one draw on each one. And so the evidence that they have, there was actually enough evidence that's consistent with Anne being very good at detecting it. And actually, if you reanalyze the data, you find that Bob shoots seven, around seven percentage points better when Anne predicts that he's going to make it than oh, when really? Anne predicts he's going to miss it. So in their data, they have real people that are paid. Basketball players are betting on each other's shots, and that's the evidence that we find. Huh, that, that's quite interesting. Yeah. That sounds, that betting on the outcome of a shot, sounds very much like fund managers selecting stocks for a portfolio. Yeah. Have you applied any of the hot hands to how do fund managers do when they're on a hot streak or a cold streak? And there's a ton of mean reversion in that data series. Right. So we haven't gone and analyzed it. And the mechanisms for being hot in the financial world are going to be quite different than in the basketball world, right? So, you know, one way of thinking... You, you look for SEC indictments. You look for... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, for sure, it, it becomes so affected by such large 
macro things, it's hard to give credit or or, or not. Or your you know your model of the world happens to be uniquely fit the current situation, and you recognize that. All right, and but that, you know that, that may that, or may not be temporary. Yeah, and that's gonna you know that, that will probably expire. But that's a very different mechanism than say how it would emerge in say a basketball game. So I interrupted you. What what else did you do you see as an application of this elsewhere? Um. An application of our of your of what you've discovered to to the world of finance. Oh, to the world of finance. So, the immediate applications, uh, maybe not so much. But if you think about people picking stocks, let's say not so much investing, but someone wants to prove that they're good um, at predicting when a stock is going to go up or down, you have to pay attention not to how often they're right, but how much money they make when they're right and when they're wrong because it's very easy to game these things so if i were to say let's say it's 50 50 i want to prove that i'm good at predicting coin flips right and so if every month you know the a coin is flipped each day stock goes up or down but i only bet when there's three heads in a row when the stock goes up three times in a row and i bet it's going to go down right in any given month i'm going to be right more often than i'm wrong huh. and so i can game you know, if you don't, if you if you if you bracket to the month level, I'm going to be more often right in certain months, and it's going to look like I'm doing well. But the thing you haven't paid attention to is how often I was right and how often I was wrong in the months that I did poorly. Mm-hmm. And so, if I'm always betting that it's going to go down when there's a few ups in a row, there's going to be those months where it keeps going down, right? But you know, there's going to be few of those months, and there's going to be many months when I did well, but I didn't predict very many times. And so, you're not controlling for how often I predicted. And so it looks like like I do really well, but if I were to bet, I wouldn't be making any money because I'd be losing a lot of money in the months where I didn't predict right. that well, only winning a little bit of money in the months that I predicted well. The, the interesting thing is if you talk to active traders um, who have been successful, they're not aiming for 50-50. They're aiming for those opportunities where a trade becomes a winner and they don't sell too early. So it's not your batting average it's how far the ball goes when you actually hit it. That's right. Meaning you could have a 20% winning trading record, but in terms of percentage of winning trades, but in terms of dollars won and lost, those 20 more than make up for the remaining 80. And uh, I always find a lot of new traders don't understand that. They think they're hitting for percentage, but they're not. They're hitting for distance. Uh, To bring in a different sports metaphor. Anything else uh, you want to share about um, the research or what you guys might have coming out? In the near future, you and your co-author. Um, off the top of my head, no. I think we the the one thing that we will say is actually though there's one thing. So it's not simply that we found that the original analysis was invalid and the original conclusions were invalid. You know, if you go back and you reanalyze that data, you find that players shoot a lot better. But it's not simply in that data set. So we've gone and collected many other data sets that replicated their original study got the same conclusion because they had the same bias that the original study had. And so when you go back and you fix that, you find evidence everywhere. Huh. And, and, and that's, we have a paper that we're finishing that's you know, showing how robust our conclusions were. So I, I know that there are all sorts of interesting um, awards for mathematical and statistical research. Are you looking at applying for any of these? How, how does that work? Are you, can you self-nominate? Does the institution have to nominate you? How do you say, uh, how, how does that process work? Have you guys thought about this It's not all? something we thought about. Oh, uh, well, let me plant that seed. And if this is significant enough, you should uh, apply for either a grant or a 
uh, mathematical award, although I, most of these you have to be nominated by other uh, people. But how hard is that to have your department chair nominate you? That's that's easy enough. I have to ask you, I, I didn't ask this earlier. You grew up in California. You went to Santa Barbara. How did you end up in Spain? Oh, so I think you remember 2008, 2009. A little bit. Yeah. So that academic jar market was an interesting one. I was going on the market in late 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of academic appointments not appointments, advertisers for positions were disappearing because of you know the crisis. You you would think academia is with large endowments and what have you, somewhat ins insulated from the the vagaries of the stock market and even the broader economy, but apparently not. Yeah, and so my advisor came to me and said, "Look, this year everyone's applying everywhere, so you need to apply to Europe, even if you weren't even think you weren't thinking about it." Uh -huh. So at that time, I applied everywhere, and it was great because it opened my mind to the great opportunities that are there. So right. I, so I moved to Italy in two thousand nine. That was my first stop. Where, where were you in Italy? Uh, Bocconi University in Milan. That there are worse places in the world yeah. to ride out a recession. Yeah, no, it was a good. It was good time. I can imagine. <laughs> and then from Milan, how do you end up in in Spain? So I wanted to join my co-author and finish our work. Is that where he was yeah. located? Yeah, yeah, and he still is. So we're both right. at the University of Alicante. On, on the lovely Mediterranean Sea over That's there. Right. Yeah. It, there. Again, parts of that whole whole Mediterranean coast is just spectacular, isn't it? So you you don't miss California too much. I get back a couple times a yeah. year. So. Quite, quite interesting. All right, let's jump to our favorite questions. I can't believe you guys never thought of saying, hey, maybe we should apply to, for some of these grants and some of these award records." Oh, we think of applying to grants, but the, the award thing, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I always thought academics had to do stuff like that in order to uh, maintain their academic standing. It's the grants you do. So we do grants we, and, and I public. do apply for money, um, yeah. that's for sure. But the, the, the recognition... Um, it's a good idea. I yeah, think. not a bad idea. Let me let me uh, when you give your acceptance speech, you can uh, thank yeah, me. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, so um, let's jump into our favorite questions, which I'll modify slightly mm -hmm. because uh, um, most people I think don't know you personally. So let me ask the question: What's the most important thing um, that your friends and family don't know about you? Friends and family. So like, you had mentioned this question earlier, and I was going to say the most important thing we've actually already revealed. Which, which is? Which is, it's what most people didn't know, we haven't shared this much, is that we, this might be, in this research, um, the first like, joint eureka moment. Right? Usually someone discovers something, even when they say simultaneous discovery, someone will discover something at one point in time and somebody at another, but no one knew about it. The electric light bulb is a classic, or yeah. radio is yeah. another classic example. So, but my co-author and I were in the—you know—we weren't in the same room. We were on the phone at the same time, and we both had the—you know—the gold is there. <laughs> you know? And Amazing. Then, but how often does that happen? No. So, who were some of your mentors in your um, early career? So, in my early career, um, I would say, and my co-author would say the same. You know, my my advisor, Aldo Rustichini, is a professor at. University of Minnesota, and he's just, you know, he's a neuroscientist, he's a mathematician, he's an economist, he's all about the science, right? Right. And Sounds seeing, like a renaissance person. Oh, he's a renaissance person. Yeah. And, 
you know, when you see that um, and you see someone that's just you know, zeroed in on that and you see how they work, you kind of you get you kind of absorb what they do through osmosis. And my co-author would the same say the same thing about his advisor, Vince Crawford at Oxford University, and uh-huh. a very deep guy, very brilliant. You know, both very brilliant. Um, and and those are formative years when you're in grad school. Right? For for sure, for sure. Um, so, what other behaviorists and statisticians influenced your approach? Um, to thinking about the mathiness of things like shooting streaks. So the, I would say the statisticians that have influenced me, there's one, right? There's Andrew Gelman. Reading his blog has been eye-opening for so many people. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just introduced how to think about data in a way that most people don't get in their formal training because right. he's dealing with real practical examples all the time. Um, and so I would say he's been one of the biggest influences. Huh. Interesting. What Just about on the be- what about on the behavioral side? On the behavioral side, there's just so many great, you know. I mean, there there was this vanguard of the people that the folks that came in in the '80s that really had to fight through, you know, the the review process of all the skepticism towards, you know, why is psychology, you know, relevant to economics? Why are these other social science disciplines? What do they have to say about? I mean, people really had to fight a lot of skepticism. So give, I think, give us some names. I'm you know, putting so you on I mean, the spot. Okay, so the people that had to fight through that. I mean, the psych, you know, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman were very influential, but they, you know, they. But came, they were within psychology. They were into psychologists. They were fine. So the people that had to deal, you know, with this kind of pushback. I mean, you say like, you know, Richard Thaler, you know, as much as you know, he, you know, he's been a bit skeptical of our work. Uh-huh. But you have to respect, you know, and and you know both his the insights he has into human behavior um, and also just what he had to fight through to kind of get get listened to. Um, so he was a guest, and my favorite quote from him was, um, early on he decided he would never convince his peers, so he thought, I'm going to bypass them and just try and convince the grad students, and we'll just wait it out. After enough funerals, we will have one. <laughs> and, and it's really turned out to be quite true. If you... If you are influencing the next generation, that's far more impactful than what Tversky said, uh, winning all these arguments and convincing nobody. Uh, it, it turned out to be very uh, clever. Anybody else you want to mention from that group? Or oh no, you, you I could mean, do I, worse I, I, than yeah, you know. So I mean, I wouldn't want to single out any person. Mm-hmm. I, you know, you just you, you look at the people that really kind of did a lot of the fighting that kind of push push the ideas through. But you know, in terms of the idea idea level, there's so many, right? Um, right. You know, so even in the con, con, you know when we were presenting our work, you know, you have somebody to say like Colin Cameron at uh-huh. you know, Caltech. You know, he came. I actually just met him at a conference, and he's a fa- he's really a fascinating dude. Oh yes, and I, I you know there's a lot of similarities you know that I recognize in him that's kind of similar to the advisor that Aldo Rustichini at University of Minnesota. You know, just this this you know the, he's all about the science, and right. really, I mean, he came to one of our talks, and he brought up footnote seventy two. Right. right, which was like the weakest point, the point he really wanted to And he with. found it. He found it. I mean, you know, we had a nice discussion about it. He, you know, <laughs> he saw our perspective after we had a talk, but it's like, right. wow, he's really taking this seriously. And it's just, it's, it's nice to see that. that that's got to be so delightful. Yeah. I believe we have him teed up for the spring as a guest. Nice. Um, yeah, he's really, uh, I love the work he does with virtual reality and showing people in incredible detail what they're going to look like when they're older, and it affects their decision-making dramatically in terms of planning. Not just like a computer-generated picture that's been aged, but when you have this immersive VR experience of 
here's your life when you're 80, it leads to all sorts of amazing changes when you're 40. It, it, it's quite astonishing. Sounds um, like I need to do that. So I'm glad, glad you brought that up. Um, so I'm going to put down Gelman as one of those people who influenced your approach to uh, statistics. Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite books? So I'll pick out a book. Um, you know, We could pick out a lot of nonfiction books and a lot of books like that. It hits you at the right time. And then if I tell you that book, I might, you know, if I were to look at it now, it might feel trivial, obvious, things like this. You never know if the book is targeted for the right person. So I'll bring up a book that both my co-author and I were a lot of, were very much influenced by, but it's literature. Right. So there's this book called The Alexandria Quartet by Lawrence Durrell. We both read it in our university days. Uh-huh. And it's kind of like the, the blind man and the elephant, but for human relationships. And it has this really novel idea. It's four books. The first three books are about three different perspectives on a seri- you know, relationships and events that happened in a particular time in Egypt before World War II, um, and from different people's perspectives. And so that's the space kind of it. So it was inspired a bit by Einstein's relativity. So there's like three different perspectives on space. And then they go forward in time and do the reflection back on, uh, on those relationships. And it gives you, you know, this kind of, you know, humility, kind of see like how, how small your perspective is, right. and how much missing information you have about what's happening. And it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a nice read. At least it was when I was in my 20s. That, that sounds quite <laughs> fascinating. The, this question is what people ask me more about than any other question, because they want to get a book recommendation from somebody who's accomplished something, done something interesting, has some experience. And when someone says, oh, and by the way, this book is worth reading, it's the greatest endorsement anybody can ever get. So I'm going to press you and say, give us one or two more books, even if you think they may have been very time-specific to you. So Duncan Watts has this book called Everything is Obvious. Yep. Beautiful book. It's so interesting. It It's all about hindsight bias and how... You see things after the fact. It's it's you're the first person who's brought that book up, and I find it. I love the cover with the uh, the wheel. I think that's a triangle instead of a circle. It's um it's really a very fascinating book. Yeah, it's it, you know it's just you have this curse of knowledge, right? Once you know something, it's obvious to you. Of you course. can't imagine how not obvious it would be to someone else. Right. right. And it, 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 and the references in that book. I mean, it's, he he you know he's an academic, so he's, yeah, he he's really given you. You know the roadmap, and like if you want to go beyond that book, all the references are there in that book. It's great. Um, and then I would say another book that's like along the lines, only because I've in the last year I read it. Um, you know, Super Forecasting by Philip. Sure, Petlock. another prior guest, delightful. Yeah, I mean it, it gives you you know humility to kind of realize how how you know if you want to start projecting three years, five years, I mean. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. But, you know, there's a lot more than that, right? Just the, a disciplined approach, right? So it's not simply, you know, and, and one one mistake you can make is, you know, a mistake I made, say, around the financial crisis time. I really was convinced Citibank would be bailed out. They wouldn't right. let Citibank completely crash. Well, right? you were you were not wrong. They did bail out. Eventually. Out. I mean, it was $2 Later. at the time, <laughs> yeah. but still, they were bailed out. <laughs> I, Had I, you said the same uh, about Lehman Brothers, that would have been a different uh, situation. What's most fascinating about Tetlock, talk about recognizing your own issue, Tetlock's original book, if you go back, was on expert political judgment, and that nobody is good at forecasting. And he then, over time, led to what, what led from him going from, 
oh, we're really bad as a species at forecasting to, but a handful of people have do a number of things that make them better at it, and therefore that's how you end up with super forecasters. That's a fascinating arc over, I don't know, third, 20 years separating the two books? Yeah, so and, and the thing I really got from that book is not getting fixated on your in, your one insight and putting all your cards on that. You know, so the, 100%. So you know these these super forecasters are right in the long run. You know they're using the law of large numbers. It's not that they're saying, "Oh, I have this one idea. I'm going to fix it." Citibank has to be bailed out. No, no. Take all your ideas and spread your bets across all your ideas, just like the forecasters. And you'll do well eventually, but don't get fixated on that one. And I think that's a nice, you know, feature. Quite, it, quite fascinating. Any other books before we move on? I think that's good. Th- those three. Those are three uh, three good ones. Um, so what are you excited about right now? What what are you jazzed about in the world of academic research? Well, I mean, I think mastery is addictive, right? So there's mastery. A lot, there's a lot of drive-by research out there, and you know we're all a little guilty of it because you know there's this pressure to publish or publish perish. or perish for sure. And when you've gone and you've really dug into something, you've really mastered something, and just mined all, as much of the gold as you have, but you also have this feeling of mastery. It just feels so great, to, and, mm-hmm. and and wanting to do that again. Right. So so the exciting thing is to take that understanding of how good it feels, how fun it is to master something and take it to the next subject while, of course, still finishing what you started. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the exciting thing. What's next? Really, really interesting. There have been all sorts of criticisms of the lack of reproducibility in academic research. What changes are you looking forward to into? Do you think that increased um, big data and AI is ever going to help us with this reproducibility problem we're running into in academic research and, and in other research? Why aren't we seeing academic research being replicated and, and even corporate research being replicated? Well, I think there's a lot of cherry picking that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you go out and you analyze something and you measure 10 different things and you just pick out the things that worked, um, you're, you're you're not acknowledging what didn't work, and right. so you're gonna you have this kind of you know winner's curse in a sense. Right. Where, where you know I won the. Uh, That's Thaler's one That's of his it, early yeah, books. Yeah, we don't have time to explain that. I realize, but but. Um, so let me re-ask that yeah, question. Yeah. So what are you looking forward to? What changes do you think are going to affect um, your your world? The changes that are going to affect the academic world. Um, so I think the the, the important change. That's going to make this better. They're going to, make, they're going to fix this. Well, fix maybe not, but make it better. Is the idea of pre-registration? Right? Meaning what? You you pre-register what you're going to analyze. You register your predictions, and so you know you, 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 your hands are tied. You can't. So therefore, you're going to go out and actually research what you're claiming, as opposed to, ooh, look at this anomaly. Let's talk about that. Right. Even though it could be random or cherry picked or what have yeah. you. And still valuing even whatever your conclusion is. Don't take that as truth we're not we have to make sure it also replicates right because even then you may have what if you don't find it you decide not to write it up right There's isn't still, that a big issue that people don't publish on um negative findings because there is value to say hey we analyzed this couldn't find anything it's a huge issue because you then you get this kind of implicit cherry picking in that like i don't want to spend my time writing up this paper because it's not a big finding well then no one's seeing that so then the papers we see are the ones that are kind of implicitly selected and so you have the same kind of degrees of freedom that's happening but it's like socially in a sense what what do you call survivorship bias about things that don't work out so i guess it is just straight up survivorship bias 
right? In other words, yeah. what's public? Yeah, yeah there's the a negative filter. Results. You have a filter. You know, the the the, the, the research ideas <clears throat> that don't make it to the publication stage have died, and so the publication ones are kind of the ones that are kind of randomly better, but not necessarily truly better. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. So, one failure. It was a success and a failure. So a friend of mine, Patrick Flanagan from graduate school, we set up this garage band hedge fund, we called it. We were loaning money on the internet. Right. And we thought we had this great idea, and it was. I mean, it weathered the crisis. We didn't lose money. We got like 5%. We weren't, it wasn't big money. It was maybe 100000 or something. We were right. bad students. Um, but but the, this is peer-to-peer lending. That peer -to -peer became a lending. huge thing. But um, the thing we didn't anticipate was, you know, the legal uncertainty of the of the enterprise. And we weren't lawyers, and we just thought, oh, we, we, we modeled, we we had a real confidence in our model. We had our automated bidding algorithm. It was it was great. We're doing well. Um, but the thing we didn't get is that the SEC could potentially crack down on on this and ruin our business model because then they changed the rules completely that made it impractical. So we just we just left because. Instead of having a direct uh, uh, a connection to the person that you're loaning, and it was now mediated through the company, and now you had to somehow price in the the risk of the company itself rather than huh. the loan. So um, and and so interesting. Yeah, quite interesting. Yeah. What do you do for fun when you're not crunching numbers? Well, I mean, this is pretty fun, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> here I am in New York. You know, you get to travel around. You get to meet with your co-authors, finish your papers in nice locations, and you know, meet interesting people. Um, I would say just seeing family, because I get to travel so much, I get to see my family and friends in different cities, and that's a great thing. What sort of advice would you give to a millennial or recent college grad who is interested in a career, uh, either in behavioral finance or stat statistics or um, any of the sort of work that you, you do, economics, what, whatever? Don't be in too impatient to have life figured out. Um, it's not too late. I've seen people in their 20s and their 30s go back, change, go back to school. You know, maybe they have to start a little lower-ranked school than they wanted to begin with, but you can get funding at those schools, and if you work hard, you can transfer. You can apply to another school. You can move up. And a lot of people get this kind of false notion that, oh, if I, didn't, if I wasn't a serious student in high school or in college, that you know, I'm too far behind. It's like no, if you're really motivated and you're you know you're you're capable and there's plenty of people that are, you can catch up. You just have to be patient. Take a few years off. But you it's can never too late to get serious. Yeah, never too late to get serious. And our our final question: What do you know about the world of statistics and data analytics today? You wish you knew a decade or so ago. Fake data simulation, basically creating. You want to know. You, you can't just go out and analyze data and show that. However I analyze it, I still get the same result. No, you have to sit down and generate fake data. So what if the world looked like this? How would my analysis behave? What if the world looked like that? How would the ana analysis behave? So you have to do this hard work of like building models of the world and then seeing what does your analytical approach tell you under those different kind of assumptions about the model of the world. And to do that, you need fake data. And that so gives you a lot of insight. when you say ca fake data, I, I think of that as a counterfactual, or how do you contextualize yeah, I mean, that? I mean, I guess everything's a counterfactual, because all models are wrong, right? Um, but but, but use, some are useful. But some are useful. And you want to know how, how, you know, under under different assumptions, if the world, you know, looked differently than you think it looks, is your analysis still going to say something meaningful or not? Um, and you need to actually go out and check that. And a lot of people don't do that. And so that's what happened in this hot hand example, right? I mean, what would this analysis give you if there were no hot hand? Huh. 
quite quite interesting. We have been speaking to Josh Miller of the University of Alicante. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, uh, where you can see the past 250 or so previous conversations uh, we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together these conversations. Each week, Medina Parwana is our producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Uh, Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Tim Harrow is our audio engineer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.